What is up, everyone? I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening and watching another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show, powered by Waxman, where together, you and I, twice a week, we get to dive deep with some of Bitcoin and crypto's most influential leaders, OGs, those who are building out this space to truly understand how this movement came to be. We've been podcasting for almost five years now in this space, and I've been around for over a decade. We're gonna have some fun today. But before we start, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button. Please leave a review, share this with your friends. Let's spread that crypto love. We've got two amazing guests today who are gonna blow your mind. First, Omid Malakana, professor at Columbia Business School, who's basically the Dumbledore of Bitcoin. He's gonna give us the rundown on why Bitcoin is the rock star, but the rock of the larger crypto world and the financial world to come. And if that's not enough, we've always talked about healthcare. A lot of times on the boring side, I know our eyes roll and we're like, we don't understand how healthcare and blockchain all mix together. Well, we got an OG of the healthcare world. He's very intriguing, very smart. His name is Pradeep Gol. He's a true healthcare wizard, the CEO of SolveCare, which is a foundation. This guy's like a real life superhero. He saw a problem, a massive one in healthcare. He's worked in healthcare. He's an executive of all the major pharmaceutical companies and healthcare companies for decades. And instead of waiting for someone else to fix it, he rolled up his sleeve and said, I got this. We're about to embark on a thrilling journey, everyone. So sit back, relax, and chill out. We're gonna have some fun, I'll see you soon. I've been perpetually writing my book for like the past 10 years. <laughs> it never ends. You, I talk about it on the show like all the time. I never, it's like I started what, writing it in 2014 or something. Wow. You know what helps is actually hire an editor. And I've done this for both my books where when you hire an editor, it's not like they can wait forever. So they're like, okay, yeah. on what date will you have a finished manuscript for me to read? And then you're like, uh-oh. Oh, that's a good point. You set a deadline for yourself. I like that. You set a deadline, which is which changes everything. And then you send them your manuscript and they immediately are like, these things work. And you know, this part you got to rewrite and you need an additional chapter, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but I need to hire a good editor then who like can yeah. give me even a skeleton of a manuscript because mine's like just 300 Google Doc pages. It's just <laughs> rambling for, <laughs> for 10 years about what's been going on in my life. Maybe there's okay. some like book publishers listening to this show and will email us both or something like that. They should email you, yeah. No, they, your I've, I've talked to and agents background. and publishers and I, I almost had a book deal when I was on house arrest like years ago, but this was when I was like facing the whole thing and, and uh, you know, and the whole story. And then I wrote a really good treatment and it was like really good. I wrote the first couple of chapters, but then the book publisher was like, well, you could publish the book, but you know, you may be going to jail or something right now, so you can't do a book tour. You can't like support your book release. It's, you know, so, and so let us know when you come out. And then once I got out, I realized that the, the story is, was continuing. So it was almost yeah. like good that I hadn't, hadn't released the book. So now uh, that's why. You know, you know, if I could push back on that for sure. a second, like you could have released that book and that would have just set you off for the second and third book. <laughs> now you're thinking like a, like a publisher over here. No, but also like I actually self-published both times. I spoke for for my first book, nobody had ever heard of me, so no publisher was even going to talk to me. For the second one though, I did talk to all of them and who knows if they would have actually signed me, but I said no to the way they work because a lot of publishing is still stuck in like the 1990s. And the thing with our world is everything changes 
all the time and becomes dated quickly. So simple question I had for them is from the time I hand you a finished manuscript, when can I reasonably expect that a book would come out? And the fastest answer was a year to 18 months. A year to 18 months. Wow. That's like from the second you're done writing. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, no, the world moves at the speed of Twitter now. And then self-publishing is more work, but I got it out about five months. What year did you publish the first book? 2018. And that was the story of the blockchain, a beginner's guide to the technology that nobody understands. So you published it in 2018. That means you must have finished it in like mid, like 2016. No, not that one. That one is, is short and, and it's the goal I set for myself on that one was actually to have as minimum content as I needed to get achieve the mission, which was to give like an intelligent person a basic understanding in an afternoon or two. So that one, I believe I finished in in like December, January, and then it came out maybe five, six months later. The second book, everything was a little slower because there's a lot more content in there. And then also I was a bit more ambitious with like the quality of the actual production. Because even when you're self-publishing, you could really go, you could self-publish a book that looks and feels as good as what a publisher puts out. And you can also use all this, like all the people I use from my second book were freelancers, but they also work for the publishing companies. So in terms of like cover design, illustration, editing, you can use the same people that they do. The only thing you don't get if you don't use a publisher, one, in the event that there is an advance, you don't get that. But And also, book, in my story that I'm talking about, people that were involved in the early days, I need a publisher to like give me, that has editors that will give me like legal identity or whatever, because they'll do all the work checking all the sources. So yes. then if something, if someone gets sued, it's the publisher that's getting sued. Because these are, you know, these are some big, powerful people now in the crypto space. Uh, uh, that I were, you know, in my story here, that's kind of, I've been not wanting to publish. Maybe I shouldn't got it. put that part in the podcast right here. My, my editor is <laughs> going to be like, I'm leaving that. I'm just joking. It doesn't matter. Um, no, look, that, that controversy <laughs> sells books. Yeah, so does. I actually think that the whole thing is, should be very compelling to, because also, particularly when it comes to crypto, because it has yet to really go mainstream, what a publisher wants is a good human story that happens to have crypto tie-ins. So, and and you have that, I feel like, in droves. Yeah, I knew what we were living was going to be considered history. And I tried to appreciate how historical and revolutionary what we were living was going to mean. Even now, and it was, it's still fresh in my mind 10 years later, I still feel like I fully didn't appreciate how important mm. and historical it was. Some of the, the things that were happening, because we were just like kids having fun, you know, we weren't really mm. thinking about the repercussions or the consequences. I I dealt with the ultimate consequence, but you also had a you also had a big thing with Mt. Gox, right? When they got hacked, you lost a little bit of money and that kind of started your crypto journey. I didn't lose money. I, I was new enough to Bitcoin that I just missed that. And and my first the first time I touched crypto was actually wasn't for myself. I was helping a friend who wanted to buy a little bit of Bitcoin and I uh, used Coinbase for her. But the fact that Mal Gox happened played a big part in my rabbit hole moment because I actually thought the fact that for the first time in history, something that is purely digital was stolen and could not be replaced. 
as painful as that was for the people who lost money on Mt. Gox, this was a major milestone in the history of the internet. They're still uncovering new news about how Mt. Gox was actually hacked like very recently. It's like 10 years later. And it definitely was a big, it was a very big, important event for everyone. And uh, what was that first book about? You know, you had, you had, you said it was a very short book and allowed people that, that didn't really understand blockchain, crypto. Did you put like a story arc in there? How did you get some of your messages across? And what like takeaways do people get from that book? The genesis of that book was at the time I realized that one, there weren't nearly as many Bitcoin or crypto books as there are today. And two, most of them were either really technical or fairly ideological. And I thought there was an opening for a book that was neither one of those things. And if just any kind of person who's not too technical, but is open-minded, asks the question, what is Bitcoin? What is blockchain? What's Ethereum? What's a token? What's a smart contract, et cetera? So the goal I set for myself was, how can I explain those concepts in relatable ways to the everyman and woman? And so just like uh, thinking back, like what, how I defined blockchain for that audience was it's a technology that gives digital items physical properties, like scarcity. Huh. So you like associate crypto with property and like kind of how land is scarce and earth can never have any more land. Yes, but it's actually even simpler than that. I, and the way I opened that book, similar to how I start my classes at the start of the semester, I, I like to talk about the music industry because anybody who's around my age or even a bit younger could remember that moment when we went from physical distribution via CDs to digital. Yeah. Like I remember when Napster came out, yeah. I was in college and it was the greatest thing ever. I was Lime like, wow, I can. Yeah, and LimeWire. I was like, I, I can have a thousand songs on my computer. People who are too young now don't appreciate how convenient that was versus like when you had to go to Tower Records and buy the CD that only had 15 songs and then you had to keep changing the CDs every time you wanted to hear a different artist. So from a consumer point of view, this was revolutionary. But from an artist's and even the industry's point of view, it was devastating. Because before the invention of Bitcoin, there was always this trade-off that if you want the convenience of digital, you have to surrender the scarcity and integrity and property rights of physical items. So the, my breakthrough actually with Bitcoin, when I did my first on-chain interaction, was just instinctual in the sense that like, wow, this is something that only exists on the internet. It's in my wallet. But if I send it to somebody else, it's not in my wallet. It's in their wallet. And I had no idea back in 2013 or whenever this was how any of this works. I do not have a technical background whatsoever. But you didn't need to have a technical background because at that point, something like sparked in you. You knew it just worked and it was like the, the ramifications of that. Yeah. So a big part of it was this idea that, wow, if you could give digital items, properties like scarcity, then that could be revolutionary. And then the other thing I had going for me is at some point I had a career in Wall Street. And the one thing you realize when you work in finance very quickly mm. is you never actually own anything. Yeah, <laughs> that's so true. It's all like ledgers and it's all just everything's, a, a, you know, a Google spreadsheet from one bank to the next. And yeah, when you work in Wall Street, you realize that like money is just some sort of construct that exists and it's more like oil or something. It's like a weird, weird way to explain it. So you're an adjunct and professor at Columbia Business School and you lecture on blockchain and crypto. 
Yes. What grade level? Are they freshman, sophomore, junior, senior? These are usually, well, they're generally first or second year MBA students in grad school. Oh, wow. So they're already like potentially worked in the space and they're coming to or worked in any other space and they're coming to like, you're out there getting them prepared to come and then work in our industry. And do you keep in touch with the graduates? Like where, where do they end up doing after? How does, I'm just, because it's so fascinating to me that people would like intentionally study crypto for their MBA and then go out and potentially work in the industry. Yes. And that's actually by far the most rewarding part of what I do is the students who every class, there's a few that really the light bulb goes off and they decide that they need to pivot all of their prior career plans <laughs> and, and go into crypto. And a lot of those people actually become good friends of mine because then they go and work in the industry. So in some ways, they're closer to some aspect of our world than I am. And then they become the ones who educate me because they tell me what's going on at the L1 that they're working at or the, the NFT protocol. Yeah. And that part of what I do is particularly awesome. But then even the students who don't decide to go work in crypto, the reason why most of them take my class is because they understand this is going to be some part of the business world going forward. Uh, and I actually ask them, everybody has to write a paragraph. Their first homework assignment is, why are you taking this class? And the shift in the answers over the four years that I've been doing this has been very interesting. Mm -hmm. For example, back in 2019, when I started, you would get a lot of, well, I think crypto is a scam, <laughs> but I, I figured I should learn more about it to make sure. I love that. <laughs> and I, res I actually respect, in some ways, I respect that mindset yeah. the most. Like that's someone who wants to test their beliefs, which is exceedingly rare in the world today. But today, a lot of students say things like, I mean, some of them, like you said, have literally worked in the industry and, and they want a more fundamental understanding. Others plan to work in the industry. Yeah. But there are a lot of students who say, well, I want to go into venture capital. And I think crypto VC is going to be a part of that. Or I want to go into banking or consulting. Uh, you know, I want to go into fintech or payments. And I figured I should learn about blockchains or stable coins and how they might impact that world. The TLDR is that the type of younger, career-minded, fairly ambitious student who goes to a place like Columbia Business School, increasingly just thinks this is going to be a part of their future. How did you convince the school to actually let you create the class? I was very fortunate in that until recently, I had a co-instructor who is a very OG academic. He's actually been at Columbia Business School for over 30 years, tenured finance professor, published a lot of research. And he kind of happened into Bitcoin around 2015, 2016, because he thought it was interesting. He actually, uh, his name is Gore Huberman, and his paper on how Bitcoin mining works, which is they describe it as, as an auction without an auctioneer, at various points has been the most cited academic paper in crypto. But he had started the class, and then I was invited through a random chain of events to be a guest speaker, and that's how we met. And so he had done a lot of the legwork for getting the school to let him teach this. And, and in the early years, though, from many corners, there was always doubt as to whether there would be sufficient demand from students. But up until this past spring semester, which was post-FTX, I am proud to say that there were more students who wanted to take the class than there was room. Isn't that an interesting tidbit, huh? That's so, so cool. 
it's like every couple of years you need another Mount Gox moment, and FTX was the you know the, this year's Mount. It's, and I keep stupidly losing money in them because I just love playing with crypto and experimenting in DeFi and having fun. And but um, your newest book, Rearchitecting Trust: The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money Markets and Platforms, you talk about like how through this curse of history, crypto and all the Web three components and technologies that are going to reinvent the way that we're doing everything that we're doing now. What is the curse of history? The curse of history is this phenomenon with any trust framework where the longer it's been around, the more people take it for granted and the more likely someone shows up who abuses it. So we actually get a mini version of this in crypto with every bull bear cycle, which is that during the bull markets, as an industry, we tend to start surrendering some of our skepticism and perhaps put our trust in three-letter exchanges run by three acronym. You're making fun of me now. Yeah. No, no, (laughs) all of us. I think there's this fascinating phenomenon in history, particularly for financial things, but even for solutions like tech platforms where something comes around and in the beginning it's great and useful and it gains mass adoption and becomes important. But then the fact that it becomes important opens it up to abuse. And you can see this, for example, with the tech platforms. You know, you, you did a recent episode on surveillance capitalism. And where we've ended up with these big tech platforms is very different from how we envision things, those of us who were around 20 years ago. But fascinatingly enough, it's often also very different from how the pioneers who actually built these companies envision things playing out. And one quick anecdote that I have in the book is that, as you and everybody else knows today, Google is the world's biggest advertising company. If you go back and read the original Google search paper by uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, where they spell out their page rank algorithm, that paper has a whole appendix on why advertising is a bad business model for search engines. Oh my God, I need to read that. Well, now I'm sure everyone's going to be checking out, listening to this episode, checking out your book. We'll have it all in the show notes. Omid Malakan, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited that this podcast, The Charlie Shrem Show, is now powered by Waxman. I think I met the CEO, David Waxman, back in 2015 or something at an Ethereum meetup. And he told me that the future belongs to the fearless. And that is why they are producing the show right by my side. What an amazing team we have now. It's so amazing. You guys have been hearing some great updates. I've been following along. If you don't know, Waxman is the leading global strategy and communications firm advising the next generation of companies in Web3, disruptive technology, Bitcoin, crypto, fintech, artificial intelligence, and venture capital. Waxman's clients are ambitious leaders and businesses that are on the frontier of this whole new economy because they really do believe that the future belongs to us and we're the ones building it. With services across everything from digital marketing, public relations, social media, investor relations, financial communications, recruiting, and public affairs, they're helping companies and individuals like myself seize the business opportunities that we deserve, overcome challenges that we all are gonna face and achieve sustained success. Head over to Waxman to learn more. You guys are going to love them. We have them in the show notes. Check it all out. It's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. That's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. I just like to get right into it. What's, What's interesting with your story is that in the year is 2004, and for 14 years, you're 
You're, you're building and running this company in various roles in the healthcare industry. And you're a huge company that did outsourcing technology projects for solutions for like Medicaid and Medicare and SNAP if you're in the US and you know some of these things, but basically like similar programs to like uh, how European countries have their public healthcare system. And then you went on, yep. after you sold that to WebMD, you went on and continued to build some solutions. You helped build some solutions under the Affordable Care Act and things like that. So I'm like very, right. very cool background and like we can spend like so much just time talking on that and like I, w- I wanted to do that and then I'm like reading onwards and I'm like so he's for six years he's running the Solve Care Foundation which is building out your goal is to redefine care coordination improve access to care empower the consumer with information and basically just solve all of the medic the, the problems with healthcare in the U.S. if not the world today but using crypto and blockchain technology. And so this completely intrigued me. And I, I don't know where to start this story. Like where? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes I wonder where the story is going, you know? <laughs> where did it all start? Like at what point did you realize that this technology was something that you wanted to work on? Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you for the introduction. Uh, I have spent my life in healthcare and it has given me a lot and I have tried to give it back. And over the years, I've learned that the problems of healthcare are intractable, but not unsolvable. And having done a variety of things in healthcare, both commercial and public health, it uh, seemed like the, that we never, ever attacked the fundamental issues of healthcare. And while I wasn't really looking at blockchain as a panacea, and it isn't, I had set my mind to building a new kind of a healthcare ecosystem that would treat everyone fairly, would allow business to function efficiently, would allow the consumer to retain dignity and rights and necessary controls, and to build this more equitable model of care delivery. And it doesn't really matter whether we are focusing on U.S. and our size and spend and waste and all those things that people love to talk about. Yeah, The fundamental issues of healthcare are the universal. We need to be able to give care to the person at the point they need it as soon as we can give it to them by the right people and, and charge a fair price for it. And this is not a problem just of the any country, developed or underdeveloped or developing. Yeah, that's not the lowest so, hanging fruit problem, too. That's like the biggest, yeah. pro- the last mile problem, especially like healthcare now, that's not bad. Right. I mean, healthcare always will be uh, at a point where we would want to improve it, right? Uh, one. So from that perspective, there is an infinite room for innovation, but there is a huge barrier to any innovation happening in healthcare. And if you look at from my perspective and my learnings, there are three insidious, invisible barriers to healthcare being better for humanity. And those are, there are lots of care delivery silos. We are defined, quality of care is often defined by our zip code because that zip code becomes a delivery silo. You know, within 100 miles of where you live becomes your delivery silo. Ah, oh, interesting. Right. The second uh, barrier that everybody talks about, and we do precious little to solve it, but it's eminently solvable, is the data silo. You know, whoever has your data has the decision-making power and also has the monetization power. So if as an insurance company, I used to be insurance company exact, you know, data was everything. You didn't want to share data with hospitals because if you gave them too much information, they could do things you didn't want them to do or Hospitals don't want to share the data with the patient, so they don't. I, move I understand why. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I never thought. The data of it silos that way. are a big issue. 
Exactly. It's a, it's a it's not something that was engineered by some evil people. The system incentivizes the data hoarders to hoard data because it gives them enormous economic advantage. I have a family member who's like on a quest now. She worked all her life with not the best health care. And now she's like with different doctors and trying to like uh, look and feel the way she wants to look and feel. What's interesting is that all the, the medical information, you, I can tell that specific doctors will take the information and just not and give the and, and make decisions that financially better them as opposed to what's best for her as a patient. And if there was like a mechanism on which the data was sitting, you know, where it's not private, where it's of course private, but it can be shared and the approval process is there with other healthcare providers, I feel like that incentive to like actually give the best healthcare goes up because now you're competing with other people for the same patient. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, economic incentives aside, which become perverse very quickly when one party has an asymmetrical advantage over the other party, you know, it's human nature to try to exploit that advantage. And physicians or hospitals or pharmacies or government or insurance or employer, employer benefit administrators, TPAs, everybody seeks to have that economic advantage. It's called leverage. It's called competitive advantage. But when it harms a patient, it's unacceptable. Uh, And it's very difficult to define that line. Where is it, you know, optimizing economic value of the service you deliver? And where is it, it's it's detrimental to the service quality you should deliver? And it's very hard to measure. There is a third silo, though, uh, which I want to just bring up. So you got the delivery silos, you got the data silos. We also have payment silos, which very few people think about. But who pays your bill determines, to a great degree, the type of care you can get and where you can get and how much care you can get which is why we love to hate insurance companies because they, as a payment authority, often dictate who you can go see and who you can't and how many times you can go see a doctor and whether the referral is permitted and whether you can get certain type of care even because we don't believe this is a good care. So we're not going to let you go get the care, alternative medicine or acupuncture or what have you. Those are just extreme examples of where insurance company will dictate that because I pay the bill, I'm not going to pay the bill for things I don't like. Uh, and that creates a huge conflict both with the patient and with the doctor. Patient thinks they should get additional care or or different type of care. Doctor thinks they can deliver this care and might be beneficial to the patient uh, because healthcare, by definition, is speculative. You can never be sure of the outcome. So physicians feel like they have the right to, you know, professionally speculate on what might work. And we have insurance companies making decisions on what care they will permit. So there's a huge conflict there. So these okay. three silos, in one way, shape, or form, com- exist in every part of the world. And collectively, they always impede the patient experience and the patient's choices, always. Sometimes they're well-constructed, so they're invisible to the patient, so they don't see the prison walls. Sometimes they are not well-constructed, like in the U.S., and we see them and we complain about them. But these three forces are always working in a way that to the patient feels opposite to their interests. So in designing any system of the future, we have to bring parity to these three considerations. Who has the data? Who's making the payment? And under what conditions, under what rules? And where do I get care from? And that brings us back to the question of, you know, how can blockchain help? And it, it sure can. Before you answer that question, you're living over in Europe right now. How, how is it different? Because I'm thinking from like an American angle. And mm-hmm. I think when I'm thinking of the three silos, right? How is it different in Europe? Like, it seems like when you have healthcare as a utility, 
and your country's small enough and has and if it's run well enough with enough wealth that it could be like an efficient medical system like the solutions aren't the incentive for the patient to just live longest to continue paying into the system or is like what's the solution there yeah so if you take these three sort of invisible gears or invisible levers of healthcare in small countries access silos don't feel like silos because your country is a little silo as long as you can get care anywhere in your geography you feel like okay this silo doesn't affect me but it does the moment you need specialty care so in europe in some of the most advanced economies the time period to wait for a specialty care can be 3 months it's normal and it's almost expected now that you know if i'm in one of the scandinavian countries i believe the highest wait time for specialty care uh, wait time even and for the specialty home, Canada, like what specialty just like cardiology uh, really uh, oncology ophthalmology endocrinology even gastroenterology basically anything that goes beyond primary care you know basically anytime you go to the primary care doctor goes well i'm going to have to refer you to somebody who's a or specialist about heart lungs liver you know it takes months if not system. like a super months, long time months the second thing is in many of these the developed countries while primary care is readily accessible more readily accessible than the us specialty care is not and then the then there is a, the second thing there is typically a, a government framework that determines whether you can even get care the specialty care so there is a there can be a black and white decision made that you are just too old to for us to bother giving you heart care. So mm-hmm. in that sense there are built-in triage regulations again going back to care delivery silos and payment silos because the government says look I'm better off spending money on a younger patient than to spend a lot of money on heart surgery for an 83 year old woman. While there's a there economically sound choices one could argue but there's a huge moral and ethical and patient rights concern in oh that just because grandma's 83 year old doesn't make her less useful to society. than a 13 year old so we make they make these blanket choices in terms of care delivery and those are again very much present and then you also have the payment issues so the patient might be able to afford the care okay but the provider feels that their services are not well compensated so you have brain drain you also have physicians limiting the access to care saying well i don't get paid much so mm. i'm going to work normal business yeah. hours and i'm not going to put in the extra effort so there is a perverse incentive but if the country is relatively small if the incidence of disease is uh, uh, is yeah. not that prevalent or is is simply accepted that okay you're going to get old you're going to die and 75 is old enough then you end up with a scenario where these silos very much operate in a daily decision making but there's an illusion that as long as you're taking care of the majority need for the majority of the population let the outliers pay the price So I would say that having traveled the world and lived in many countries whether it's Asia you know you take a look at um you know very well developed asian economies their care is readily available but then the cost is becoming unbearable to society you have europe where care is moderated and modulated and rationed there's a different kind of cost to society yeah. and you come to us where we don't really want and allow for much of rationing there we have continuous orthogonal relationship and conflict between patient provider and insurer shows up in a very unhealthy opinion of the public about how bad our healthcare is and of course spiraling costs so in a nutshell charlie healthcare has significant opportunity for improvement in every part of the world and these three levers are always interacting in a way that are whoever's hand is on the lever is making the decisions and then almost yeah. never 
to your or my benefit. So what's the solution or your solution? That's a great question. I think the, the, the solution, of course, is multi-pronged, but from a fundamental framework perspective, we need to look at what allows these silos, even if they need to exist, to be more visible and more manageable from all parties' perspective. And there are really three fundamental parties to healthcare, the patient who needs care, the provider who delivers care, and the administrative slash regulatory body that governs care, right? And there's always the fourth element, which we should never forget, which is society or family, the yeah. social side of the care, which is a huge factor because as a kid, you know, it's his, I'm responsible for my kid's health. So the social element of his care, I'm a huge factor. So the four elements, but three are really decision-making elements, uh, the, the patient, the provider, and the, uh, and the governor or the administrator. And what we have tried to do is to build an ecosystem, a fabric using blockchain where these three roles have clearly defined authority and power and, and responsibility and control. So if, if we treat all of them equally and we don't try to put one in a hierarchy, we don't stack them on top of each other, but we say they're all equal, they're kind of aligned, bound to a common fabric where the fabric is transparent. And what I do as a patient, what you do as a physician and what a third party does as an administrator, the rules are public, transparent. So think smart contracts that can be audited by anybody or even by the parties. And where these rules are baked in, uh, are ba based on the relationships we have with each other, uh, which is how healthcare works. It's the team that gets mm -hmm. created around an episode and relationships are forged quickly around that episode. Yeah. So I didn't know you till two weeks ago. And now I get sick. I you, be, you are my assigned physician or I'm the, you, uh, the physician I choose or you end up being in ER when I arrive there, we have now a relationship either with you as an individual or with your institution. Uh, there is going to be a nurse, there's going to be a pharmacy, there's going to be a lab, there's going to be probably a specialist and there's going to be some administrative entity saying, did Pradeep get the right care and how much is this costing society, taxpayer, insurance company, employer, whoever is writing the check or me. Uh, even in that case, somebody's watching over the governance of this thing. So all three parties should have a defined role, defined relationship, transparent logic, and individual control over data and, and blockchain-driven consent to share data and control over that data based on the relationship. And we blow up most of the levers that have been developed in healthcare that are the invisible levers. So basically, we bring equity, access, and efficiency back to healthcare if we first build that infrastructure. Then the second part of that solution is you make this infrastructure universally available, so it's relatively low cost, low risk to use it. So you don't try to say, well, we're going to come in and blow up your hospital systems and you're going to yeah. replace them with our system. That's not going to happen. So you make this infrastructure valuable enough, openly accessible and low cost enough for entities to say, look, I'm going to keep my usual controls here. But when it comes to patient engagement or complex case management or disease management or uh, end-of-life management, this system works better. So you draw them in to the fabric by demonstrating clear ROI because healthcare is a business and business is driven by ROI. Yeah. So you, you have to offer that. And the third thing is to draw a community into it that can write their own healthcare delivery models, be it a doctor community or be it a patient community or be it a church community or be it insurance or government or employers, doesn't matter who, to be able to easily write new healthcare applications, be it appointment, be it prescription, be it risk management, be it you know education of the patient, be it referrals, whatever. And those applications 
should be so quick and easy to write that the alternative to doing them in the old way looks painfully slow and expensive. So that's the, the path to transformation that we have laid out uh, for healthcare. And then it's universal. Country, continent, geography, race, ethnicity, doesn't matter. So you created a layer two chain that's built called uh, Care Chain, and you have proof of competence instead of... Yeah. What is proof of competence? How does it work? Yeah, so proof of competence is a very clear premise that when you are interacting with somebody else from the chain, you need to know if what is their competence, what role are they in. You may not and need not know their identity, but before you forge a data relationship or a care relationship or a payment relationship with them, those are three relationships you can forge between any two entities on the chain. You need to know what their competency level is. Who are they? Just because Pradeep gets on the chain with a care wallet and says, I'm a doctor, doesn't make me a doctor. There has to be a way for you as a patient before you send me data, uh, before you make an appointment with me, you need to have competency established. But there are many competencies. You can have competency from a clinical point of view. How do you, you can like, have a competency? So you have validators and then you have people who can join to become like healthcare providers and then they get like rated or scored and then yes, by their peers of similar competency Very or higher competency. So the idea is that you know there are 57 million care providers in the world. There is no place for us to be able to access them, mobilize them, yeah. engage or empower them. So how do I do that? I create a proof of competency chain, which is open and transparent. And even to become a validator of certain scale, you would need to have competency in terms of saying, look, I know certain healthcare laws and regulations so I'm not going to, I'm liable if I sell somebody's healthcare data off. Yeah. Not that they, you know, so competencies can be defined from clinical point of view, from administrative point of view, even from uh, governance and regulatory point of view. So every role on the care chain that you ever create, ever, today or in the next 100 years, you can link to it a certain competency expectation. And when you create that competency expectation, you can create a competency validation smart contract to say, this is how we will validate the competency. This is going to be the contract through which they must pass to get the competency NFT. Once they have that, then they can forge certain relationships. So in your wallet, you need to have a competency NFT to host certain type of healthcare data. If you are a physician, you need to have a competency NFT to say you are a doctor. You are a primary pediatrician, not a, a neurosurgeon. But if I'm a neurosurgeon, there's a competency NFT for that too. So the notion is that let's use the notion of NFT in a much more intelligent way to create this digital certificate of authority. So using proof of authority as a principle, building care competency NFTs, which can grow, grow, grow forever, right? And if we find that they have some healthcare competency has evolved, well, you just evolve. You need NFT A to mint NFT B. So you can keep evolving any level of degree of layers of competency. So we can map the global healthcare ecosystem using care NFTs. Oh, this That's is very basically cool. the notion. This is very interesting. Are there... This is, I like, because I was going to ask you, like, where do you start? Like, it's, a, it's such a big problem to solve. And of course, you, you know about the problem. You're, you, you understand it in the largest way. But where do you start? But I see what you're doing here. And you can start with just a few healthcare providers and then grow from there with the angle that you've taken with the way. And do any regulations need to be, like, changed or updated on the crypto side for this to, to reach its full potential? Or are we good there? Well, it's a mixed bag. Um, I think the way we have structured the platform, we 
we don't expect that regulation will catch up quickly. Typically, in my experience, and I've been in healthcare regulation, exposed to it and being part of it for a while, is that industry drives innovation, regulation always plays catch up, right? It's only a matter of delta, how big a delta there is. But you will always have industry pushing for innovation. And oftentimes, industry will innovate outside the boundaries of what the regulation yeah. envisioned, not necessarily break it, but just silent on those matters. And then regulations are, oh, gotcha, we got to catch up and write something about this. So if we build a global fabric like ours, and we have built it, and as we expand it, it becomes easier for the regulator to write regulation because the everything is so transparent. There is no asymmetry between parties. So regulator doesn't have to worry so much about who's taking advantage of whom, because it's hard to take advantage of anybody in the system we have designed. So from a regulator's job becomes a lot easier. Instead of trying to protect the underdog, I can facilitate better care, right? We can focus on what really matters. Better care at highest value at the lowest possible cost while maintaining patient and provider experience to be humane and effective. That's your four goals of healthcare in every country and every part of the world. So if you look at those four goals, regulators always struggling to achieve those four goals. And we are saying our fabric makes it a lot easier to achieve those goals. And you don't need to have this notion of who's taking advantage of whom the platform protects all parties equally, or the chain does. So with that, coming back to your question, uh, regulation is very, uh, you know, different patchwork. Uh, a lot of it's driven around, written around, in fact, majority of healthcare regulations written around protecting patient and patient data. Mm. And that gets fundamentally addressed with the care chain, fundamentally. So that regulation sort of becomes, you know, moot. It's there, it's addressed, whatever your intentions are, the platform can be configured to meet that in your country. That's That becomes less of an issue. Our focus then is how do we help the regulator achieve right regulation for better care rather than prevent abuse? And that's where I think the big opportunity lies. And that will take time. But as one country or one region or even one hospital catches on and starts to demonstrate better care at lower cost, this thing will explode. And we are seeing that already. Wow. I'm so impressed by what you've done and, and you know now I understand like the cycle that you that you follow and I'm on this course to find some of the best healthcare crypto projects out there and, and seeing what people are doing. So thank you so much for taking the time and, and coming on the show today and, and teaching us about everything. I mean like my mind is blown today. Thank you so much. Charlie, it's my pleasure and thank you for having me and I love your show and I thank the audience for supporting you and supporting the whole industry. So thanks very much. Thank you. Wow, what a roller coaster that was. We've traveled through the mind-boggling world of Bitcoin with Omid Malakan and then jumped into the game-changing revolution of healthcare with Pradeep Gold. I don't know about you, but my mind is buzzing. I have all their information in the show notes you can follow up. And just a quick reminder, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a review. Your support helps us keep bringing in awesome guests and spreading this gospel. And don't keep all this juicy info to yourself. Share it with a friend or two or heck, why not a dozen? And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on future epic episodes. We're on this wild crypto ride together. And as we've seen from today's episode and today's experts, we're just scratching the surface of what's possible. Thank you for joining me on this thrilling journey. Until next time, I am Charlie Shrem, your captain on this crypto roller coaster, signing off. Remember to stay curious, keep learning, and never stop having fun.